Yesterday, I was caught in the fever swamps of computer stuff. And when I finished writing my sermon, I was not able to print it a hard copy. Now, most of you who've been here before know that I seldom, if ever, read my sermon. But if I cannot clutch it to my bosom, it's just a bad situation. So fortunately, this morning, I was able to come and get things to work. And I can't tell you the sense of freedom and release that I felt by virtue of being able to get that done. This is the green season where we uh, think, preach, teach, reflect about the nature, cost, the ways and the means of Christian discipleship, how we put that into our hands to make a difference in the world, to be transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love. The normal custom is that the biblical readings, the three readings operate this way. The Old Testament reading and the gospel often relate to one another. And the middle reading, the epistle, uh, sort of poodles along on its own uh, thematically. But my tendency is to preach on all three readings if they have something to say to us about how we go through uh, the week. So that's what I'm going to do. For the last four or five years in the Episcopal Church, in most places, we have been using something called the Revised Common Lectionary, which is uh, a lectionary that is used not just by Episcopalians, but by a number of other denominations. So we know that every Sunday, people by and large, certainly in the liturgical churches, are reading the same readings. And it has always been so, but is still now that our lectionary is about 80 to 85 percent the same as the Roman Catholic lectionary. So the lectionary for Mass in the Roman Church is very similar, and we're reading the same readings, and we're thinking about the same themes. One of the good things about the Revised Common Lectionary is that it tends to allow us to listen to voices that we have not heard uh, as much from in former lectionaries, women, people on the margins, different groups and outlooks. It provides us something of a more plural understanding of the way in which God's revelatory power has operated through human history. And so it has benefited us in that regard. Today, in the reading from Genesis, we read from... Uh, we read about Rebecca, uh, one of the great matriarchs. We didn't hear much about Rebecca in former lectionaries. By the way, if you read, here's something, a little factoid. Keep this on ice. You never know when it might come in handy. If you came to church every Sunday and heard the three readings that are read in the lectionary and you read morning and evening prayer every day, at the end of the year you'd read about 80 to 85 percent of the Bible. So those who might wish to characterize the Episcopal Church as not too interested or sitting lightly on the biblical witness, that actually isn't so. If you read morning and evening prayer all the time, you would be introduced to Rebecca but not in the lectionary for the Eucharist. So today, we hear about somebody who is going to have a big influence on how we understand now uh, the great matriarchs and patriarchs of the people of the covenant. Uh, one of the things we always have to avoid 
is that there is a tendency in every age, you know, to look down the well and perceive your own image. So it would not be fair to characterize Rebecca as a feminist heroine. But it would be important to say that she has something to tell us about practical wisdom, something about composing a life, and something about being open to the promises of God. Will you go with this man? I will. Did you hear that there was a ring put in her nose? Did you hear that in the reading? Yeah. I don't know now what style it would have been. Here or here. It's hard, it's hard to know. For a minute there I thought it was for the camel. But no. So I guess she'd be right up to date if she came back to life today. Right? Rebecca starts some processes. Rebecca starts the process of becoming an essential link in the divine transmission of God's purposes. She is a great matriarch. She will be Isaac's wife. Who's Isaac? Isaac is the son of Abraham and Sarah, their only son. So we will see this now uh, moving forward. Catherine Bateson who is Margaret Mead's daughter. Do you know who Margaret Mead was, the anthropologist? Margaret Mead happened to be an Episcopalian, but that's not why I'm mentioning this. Uh, Catherine Bateson herself was an academic, and she was married to an academic. And she wrote a book a number of years ago called Composing a Life. And what it was about was how women who often are the ones who follow their husbands to career changes and opportunities in different locations and have the greater responsibility for, in the new location, composing a life. And she writes about how, in the midst of her own professional and academic career, uh, she was able to do that and the practical wisdom that she gained by virtue of composing a life. We have just read in Genesis something about Rebecca about to compose a life as she moves from her people to Abraham's people by design, by design. In the reading from Romans, we have Paul speaking about Uh, an important part of the human condition. The thing I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, I do. Sound familiar? You know? Uh, Martin Luther was supposed to have said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I said that to a Lutheran pastor the other day, and he said to me, was, it is attributed to him. We don't know whether he actually said it or not. But sometimes, you know, it's easy to think that way. Paul is speaking about a particular thing that it has to do, I think, with his own uh, spiritual uh, journey, with his own emotional, spiritual, and mental states, the conclusions that he's arrived at about the importance of the mighty works of Jesus Christ. 
and how he is enabled in any way to stay on the even keel and to do the right thing, but he's beset by the difficulty that he doesn't do the right thing all the time, maybe even most of the time. This is an important reading for another reason, and that is, is that Paul in this reading speaks again about the flesh and the spirit. And it's very important when you read Paul to understand what he means by those two things. There are a lot of people who interpret what, when Paul says flesh, in fact, it's aided and abetted by some of the English translations uh, of the Bible. There was one that if you go to England, if you go to the Anglican Church of England, often you would read, uh, instead of the New Revised Standard Version, you'd read uh, the, the um, New English Bible. Now it's called the Revised English Bible. They, they translate flesh as our lower nature. It's ridiculous. It's not what it says in the Greek. And it gives the wrong opinion, the wrong understanding. When Paul uses the term flesh, he means all that is in the human person predisposed to turn in on itself and away from God, to believe that it is the center of the universe. One of our parishioners some years ago in the sermon discussion group uh, said this was brought home to him in practical terms very strongly once when he really looked back on his life and when he was a young man he'd gotten crosswise with his boss and his boss brought him into the office and in the office was a uh, an easel with newsprint on it. And his boss took a felt-tip pen and drew a circle and said, This is the universe. And he took the felt-tip pen and put a point in the center of the circle and said, This is the center of the universe. And then he took the felt tip pen and put a little X up here on the curve of the circle and said, this is you. I saw a New Yorker cartoon a couple of weeks ago where a guy's walking down the street with a t-shirt. I may have mentioned this last week. It said, I'm with me. That's the flesh. The spirit is not some cloud cuckoo land location that we're going to go to or some aspect of our character that's sort of hazy and invisible. It's the whole of us. Body, soul, spirit, mind. And that's what Paul means when he speaks about the spirit. Turn towards God, the source of all things where we receive now the Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And Paul says that he's come to the conclusion that is that process that allows him to do the right thing. There's a danger here in what Paul is speaking of. Uh, in the recovery movement, you know, there's a lot of conversation about powerlessness, being powerless over people, places, and things. And that is true. One of the difficulties with the examined life is that it is very easy to fall into 
though something that we refer to uh, in the classic spiritual life as scrupulosity. An overweening looking at all of the aspects of our living in such a way as to just simply go too far. The hamster wheel of looking at our own shortcomings, our own faults, and so on. You and I can achieve great things uh, even if we're extremely imperfect beings. And that's part of God's grace and God's love that is unconditional and a free gift that is offered to all. And so this reading affords the opportunity to speak affirmatively about that way of understanding human beings, a type of Christian anthropology, that even though we don't do the thing we want, we do the thing we don't want to do, God comes from within to enlighten and strengthen us and continuously moves our hearts and minds to act in a way that is more godly, more just, and more loving. In the reading from Matthew, we have uh, a couple of different themes. Uh, We should explain some things uh, about all this. This is a a text about leadership, or could be uh, a text about leadership. Have you ever been in a position of leadership where you have uh, met resistance? My own tendency is when I meet resistance uh, is to doubt myself. You know, somebody pushes back. So you think, well, maybe that wasn't, that was not a good thing for me to say or do. And Jesus is facing opposition from those who, uh, some, who hear him. And his predecessor, uh, who may have been his cousin, John the Baptist, also ran into resistance So Jesus is speaking about no matter what you do, it's difficult. John the Baptist came, very ascetic, uh, no eating, no drinking, uh, looking a little strange, locusts and wild honey. And they said he has a demon. The son of man, Jesus, comes eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard. This is a text about being damned if you do and damned if you don't certainly in the beginning. But it's also a text about wisdom. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Uh, Wisdom in Greek is a feminine word. In fact, the, uh, the word Sophia means wisdom. So when you hear a woman's name Sophia, it's wisdom. What kind of wisdom are we talking about? The ability to unpack the most abstruse understandings of how human beings operate? Or is it the practical wisdom that the Savior afforded those who followed him, which is the accumulated response to adversity? The way you and I learn how to cope in a healthy and whole way as we live in relationship. That's the kind of wisdom that the Savior is speaking about. This passage also has a lot in it that sounds like John's gospel. Those who hear the Father hear me and I hear them. When I was in seminary a long time ago, I heard a lecture by a very, very prominent New Testament scholar 
who referred to this passage as the Johannine thunderbolt in the Matthean sky. You may not even know what I just said, but I just had to say it. It's such a cool line because it's true. But at the end, after all that Johannine thunderbolt, we have the wisdom of God, the spirit of God, which is what Jesus uh, relies upon. This is a, we, we would interpret this, maybe this is too much uh, vocabulary from the therapeutic culture, but what Jesus is talking about is the development of the interior self-regulation and stamina to be able to withstand the resistance and to not doubt yourself and to be able to be very clear about what it is that you believe as you move forward. And that's what we see today. Um, He's talking about an example from his own time. Children playing in Nazareth, playing the wedding game where they dance around and they sing the wedding songs and they play the flute and they do that. And they play the funeral game where they sing the morning songs and they play the flute and they do all that. And he's saying, you know, me and John the Baptist, you paid about as much attention to what we were doing, what we say and what we do as you did those kids playing in the street. But wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. The application of this gospel to everyday living has something to do with the way in which you and I can find in a constructive fashion the ways and the means to commend to other people the practical wisdom that each of us possess. Everybody has learned something. Something that is going to be valuable to commend to somebody. I don't mean giving people unwanted advice about how to live their lives. A wise old priest said to me many years ago, unwanted advice has the odor of ancient fish. (laughs) To put it mildly. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the humble commendation of the things that you've learned over time. I venture to say that sometimes we've received advice that we didn't like very much. And maybe didn't pay any attention to when we should have, by the way. But there are other times when we have uh, had someone share with, with us practical wisdom that they've learned that's been extremely helpful when we put it to good use. And this gospel is about finding the ways and the means to do that. So see this week, following the three readings, if you have the opportunity uh, in a big or small way to say, I will to God, like Rebecca. See uh, if uh, you're moving off into scrupulosity territory to uh, get away from all of that. And remember that the practical wisdom that you've learned is important. The practical wisdom that the Savior taught those who followed him was not burdensome. And that's what he means today when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen.